Would you turn with me in God's word to Second Timothy four, three and four? For the time will come when they would when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. And they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. Father, I ask today as we come together and we listen to your word, that you would use my sinful lips to bring your message to your people. That it would not be one that pleases the ears, one that pleases those itching ears that you talk about here, but one that causes their hearts to burn for your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. That's good to be back with you again this morning. Now, in the last sermon, we had looked at the word of God as it is the foundation for our word worldview, the message of salvation to us and the guidance for our daily sanctification. I tried to show how not just the last part of chapter 3, those verses that we're all familiar with, but the whole letter was Paul's way of reinforcing to Timothy the importance of a life thoroughly molded by God's Word. I had touched on briefly how Paul had divided mankind into two camps. The first of those for those who knew and applied the word of God. And then that second group, those who had abandoned God's word for a different foundation, a different worldview. And it's that second group that we're going to be looking at today. Now in the sermon, first of all, we'll be looking at one reason why people avoid the truth in God's word and how this is manifesting itself in a part of the church today. Next, we'll be looking at the results of abandoning God's word, that only true foundation that we have. And lastly, we will look at how we, I would say the majority of us here, who have placed our faith on the foundation of God's word, still find justification in our own mind for departing from that stronghold that God has given us. So let's look in the first part of our sermon here. Why do some people avoid the truth of God's word And how is it playing out in part of the church today? You see, in every age, there are dangers that the church is exposed to. But thanks to God and the power and promise that he gives us, these dangers are eventually overcome. And it strengthens us for the next assault that we will face as a body. Now, these movements over time are not generally unique. Many of them have been fought in the church before, but whether due to a lack of historical knowledge or perhaps in the way that the message is couched for its new hearers, it is brought to the people once again. But we can always rest knowing that God and his word, if we stick true to that foundation, will expose that air and deliver people in the truth. Now, that being said, I do believe that we as a church right now are in the midst of a great danger, a time when philosophical 
and academic speculation have started to come down from the ivory tower and penetrated our everyday common conversations. It has already begun to reform those opinions and some of those worldviews that we had talked about last week. Now, although it has taken some time for this to happen, a large part of our Western culture as a whole has shifted its general worldview. And as a result, we are inundated with the results of that change today. Listen to the following slogans, which are derived from this new worldview, and see if perhaps you've heard them or seen them in society. Question reality. Question authority. Basically, question anything, and you'll be part of this new worldview. Coexist, a phrase with symbols of all major religions on it, as if all of them stand equal to one another. How about Burger Kings? Have it your way. Pretty subjective saying there. Or, that's true for you, but not for me. I know we've heard that one before. Or, that's your perspective. If that's what works for you, We've all heard these at one point or another. Maybe not this one. Doctrine divides. Maybe some of you have heard that. One of my favorites, one I just found the other day, my karma has eaten my dogma. Somebody (laughs) took a lot of time to think about that one. And then the title of the sermon, I picked this one, not just because my youngest son liked the fact I got it off of a bumper sticker, but because I see it every day as I walk to work. And unfortunately, it makes me a little angry every time I read it because I don't think they understand the message they're giving. And it is trust those who seek truth, doubt those who find it. I don't know if I'd really want to live. And that, that sounds like a lot of doubt to live with every day. But you see, these and other trite sayings that I could come up with a lot more are just the commercialization of this worldview as it has filtered through our society. A worldview which is based on a postmodernist viewpoint. And I know Pastor Kaiser has brought up postmodernism here and now, but I, I really want to delve into it a little bit more in greater detail. And so I'll give you a definition of postmodernism so we can go from there. Postmodernism is defined as a reaction to the assumed certainty of scientific or objective effort to explain reality. Pretty complicated. Basically, basically what it's saying is postmodernism doesn't believe that science and objective reality exists. And so they want to move from that modernist view, which is science can tell and get to the postmodernist view. Instead of reality being based on the modernist view, it is constructed as the individual mind tries to understand its own personal and particular reality. So this is where we start getting into a little subjectivism inside postmodernism. Now, a postmodernist person is highly skeptical of explanations that claim to be valid for all groups Instead, focusing on the relative truth for each person. So now we've hit subjectivity and relativity in this group. Interpretation and private interpretation is everything to the postmodernist. And lastly, postmodernism denies the existence of any ultimate principles. But earlier I told you that I'd speak of a danger to the church and the danger that I perceive is that an increasingly vocal and larger portion of mainly the Western church 
which has been labeled or labeled itself with the term emerging or emergent, has not just recognized the shift in societal worldviews, which is okay to recognize the shift, but they've decided that to reach those people in the masses, they must embrace those same principles. In effect, they have made the conscious effort to balk at defending universal truth and are willing to casually sacrifice doctrinal purity in order to build a larger community. Now, it's not the first time God's word has been abandoned in the church and it's not going to be the last. So I want to look at at least one reason that Paul gives here in this letter as to why people desire to abandon the truth in God's word. And remember here as we're reading this, he's not speaking particularly literally to society in general. He is speaking to Timothy about some of the things that he'll expect to see in the church, in the believers. So keep that in mind as we read these verses and the ones following. Let's go back to 3 and 4 and I'll read again. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. And they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. You see, let's contrast these people that Paul's talking right now to what we had seen him say about Timothy last week in 2 Timothy 3.10, where he had said, But you, Timothy, have carefully followed my doctrine, my manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, and perseverance. You see, Paul, as I stated last week, did not separate doctrine from the life that you are supposed to live. Yet today we are being told that doctrine is an impediment to the work of Christ, that it is a wall to growing a larger community. Now let's contrast these men again who are raising up their own teachers with the two companions on the road to Emmaus with Christ. Now, if you remember, I'd ask you to remember the point that they had a burning in their ear, uh, burning in their heart when the word was opened to them by Christ as they walked along the path. But instead of that burning in the heart, when doctrine is discussed today, we have men who instead get heartburn because they have an itching in their ears that caused them away from the truth and to raise up teachers for themselves that will only bring them falsehoods and lies or fables, as the word is here. And I want to discuss the Greek word for itching here. In the Greek, it is kenetho. And it's important to look at that word because it, it signifies the desire to hear something pleasant. And it is this desire to hear something pleasant that causes men to raise up their own teachers. So knowing that these false teachers and their false teachings are not new, we should examine with a careful ear and a careful eye what we are being taught, what we are listening to, and also what we are seeing out there in society as to how it is stacking up to the Word of God. Let us not endure the raising up of false teachers. Let us instead endure the sound doctrine that Paul talks about here. 
And let us not raise up teachers that please our ears and tell us what we desire to hear. And instead, teachers who will tell us what we need to hear. Now, the danger that lies before us cannot be emphasized enough. I can't tell you enough how great this danger is. If we deny universal truth and the existence of absolutes, eventually that will take us on a path to denying God himself. No matter how nicely you sugarcoat that message to the people. I want to impress on you the connection that lies between the Trinity, the Word, truth, and salvation for us. In John 17, 17, we see Jesus' state of the Father, sanctify them by your truth, your Word is truth. In John 14, 6, we then see Jesus' claim that He is the way, the truth, and the life. And in John 8, 31 and 32, he states, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And lastly, in John 16, 13, we see Jesus call the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, who will guide them, the disciples, into all truth. So here we have each person of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, as they stand in relation to the truth and God's Word, that Word being the revelation of God, our foundation. Now, instead of this, this Christian postmodern view in denying truth ultimately denies the Word and the Trinity as well. A historical example of this in practice is seen in John 18, 37, and 38, where we have Jesus and Pilate in a discussion. Pilate therefore said to Jesus, Are you a king then? And Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? You see, I think Pilate made a shift as he was talking to Jesus. He's sitting there talking to this man, and I'm sure Pilate was pretty certain and sure of himself. He was probably a modernist in that point. Anything I say goes, and that's just the way it is. And then he he meets this man. The Jews bring him to him, and he starts talking to him. And this man doesn't act like everybody else that he's met. And when he questions him, he doesn't answer. And when he does answer, he gives him these answers about truth and about things that Pilate probably doesn't think too much about. So he makes the shift from, I'm certain about how things are, to I'm not so certain about how I'm viewing life anymore in light of this man that stands in front of me. But in a very postmodern way, he didn't see the truth, see what Christ was bearing witness to, but instead he questioned Christ with what is truth? Can there be a truth? What is this truth that you're talking about? And so he didn't grasp the answer that was right in front of him. Instead, he grasped further uncertainty, leading him down the road that postmodernism will take us if we continue to go that way. And this postmodern thought has already invaded the church. And with it arises an ancient Yet a persistent challenge against all truth, ultimately assaulting the Word of God as our foundation. 
Now, whether it's a trivial bumper sticker or a slogan that I brought up earlier, or a more carefully thought out, yet just as a biblical view of truth, doctrine, and knowledge crafted in a book, each attacks the position of Scripture and doctrine as God's Word. Now, again, I must reemphasize, this is not just an academic theory, but is being brought forth in pulpits across our country today. And so I've brought one example of this from a popular, very popular postmodern preacher, so much so that maybe many of you have even read this book that this example comes from. I'm sure you've heard of the man. I won't mention his name, but he has invented a term, Brickianity. He's invented this term in order to denigrate the role of Scripture and doctrine in the church. You see, he claims that in the church today, we've made doctrine like bricks in the wall. And what people are trying to do is that they're trying to keep these doctrines, keep these bricks in place in the wall. And while we're busy doing that, and by saying busy doing that, he's talking about us and a church that has a high view of Scripture and doctrine. While we're busy putting these bricks back in the wall, we're not encouraging people to come and follow Christ. And you see, this is the natural outcome of the postmodern presuppositions that he works from. If doctrine is an impediment to growing a larger community, then you must, at the very least, minimize it, if not totally leave it behind you and go off in your own direction. So instead of seeing doctrine as bricks, he would like the Christian experience to be a trampoline, which, which will allow for flexibility in the Christian life as these doctrines, they spring as you bounce during your Christian walk and they can get bigger and smaller depending on how your ride is going. And hopefully in this way, it will bring a more fulfilling and joyful Christian experience. Now, before I comment on his illustration, I would like you to turn to Ephesians 2, 20 to 22. And I'll read from there. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you are also being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. So now I'll take that example that he gave and put it into action here with Ephesians 2, 20-22. In opting for a trampoline, in, place, in putting springs as a foundation instead of a solid foundation of bricks, and here I'm using his example, by denying truth in order to pacify the wayward hearts of men with pleasing ears, or men like Pilate that refuse and cannot even see truth that is standing before their eyes. Instead of this beautiful building that Paul shows us in this picture, growing forth from the apostles and prophets with Christ as the chief cornerstone, instead, what do we have? We have a crumbling tower thrown down on the earthquake of a false philosophy as those springs rock that building until it falls. So I pray that God would turn the itching ears of men into the burning heart of a bosom that yearns for truth. A truth revealing not just God and salvation, but everything we live and everything we do 
in our daily life. In this next section, we're going to look at what happens when we do or if we do abandon the word. And Paul was not shy about what drove people to abandon the word. It was the itching ears, the creating of their own teachers. And even less does he avoid discussing the outcomes of taking such a path. Now, his words are important, not just to the danger that I brought up there from the emerging church, but they relate to any true any group that denies the truth of God's word, whether it be a denial of truth in general or whether you add or subtract to it, as many groups have done over the ages. Let's turn to Second Timothy three and I'll read one through nine and then I'll skip up to verse 13. But know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying its power. And from such people turn away for of this sort are those who creep into households and make captives of gullible women loaded down with sins, led away by various lusts, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of truth. Now, as Jana and Jambres resisted Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds disapproved concerning the faith, but they will progress no further For their folly will be manifest to all as theirs also was. And skip to 13. But evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. And if you remember from last week, the reason why I skipped that one portion, that's where Paul goes back and forth. He's comparing Timothy and his solid foundation on the word to these other men which have abandoned that foundation I know what some people are thinking. Wow, that's a pretty long laundry list there. And perhaps maybe Paul and I, by bringing it up here, have overstated our case just a little bit. Because those repercussions that Paul listed there are not involved necessarily with the movement that I described earlier or with even other groups that have denied the truth of God's word. And I would say that while certainly all of these factors, you could call it the perfect storm of apostasy, if you would, are not readily evident immediately after you abandon the word, the word of God. There is no doubt historically that this is the ultimate result of the downward spiral that churches take when their foundation is washed away by whatever new and pleasing doctrine is brought to the ears. The trend is historically unmistakable and undeniable that this will happen. While those leading these changes oftentimes can hardly be identified differently from an outward perspective of morality, from those they are separating themselves from in the church. But this change will happen rapidly as that remnant of the solid foundation, which was there in the beginning with those first leaders, will not exist later in their followers. And when that happens, the trajectory of the change will increase exponentially. Given merely a generation or two, if it takes that long, the morality which still remain within these movements at the beginning of their change is next to give way. 
And the answer is obvious why this happens. When you take away objective divine authority, subjectivity will soon reign inside of that body. Your assurance will fail and nothing will be left but an empty shell of religion. And at its very best, that religion will have a morality completely divorced from Christ. Eventually, God's patience with those groups will be eroded and the outcome is seen in Romans 1 for those who suppress the truth and unrighteousness as they are led to increasingly worse and vile sins. Worse than some of these we saw in Paul's letter to Timothy here. So let this be a warning to us not to trivialize that which God has given to us which reveals Himself and that which He has purchased at great price for us, His people. Let us cling to the Word of God where we find our strength and not to an empty religion which has no meaning and provides us merely a form of godliness, no knowledge of truth, and eventually waiting and a folly of our own creation. Now, in the first two parts of the sermon, what I just wanted to do briefly was to open your eyes to a modern trend in the church because it's out there and it's getting stronger with each day. And I do believe if it's consistently, and notice I did say the word consistently followed, it would lead to a denial of the Christian faith over time. And then I showed you the results of abandoning God's word in such a way. Now, I highlighted this trend because postmodern thought floods our minds daily in society, whether we recognize it or not. And it has come into the church and it has come into the literature that we read. Just think of some of those slogans I said earlier. And there are a lot more of them out there. It's the way people are thinking nowadays. But as I prepared the sermon, I realized that despite our high view of Scripture and the place where we put God's Word, we still manage to rationalize to ourselves and justify why we want to depart from God's Word as we make daily decisions. And so in this next part, my goal is not to saturate you with details in any one way in which we sin and fall short in these areas, but is only to open up your eyes to biblical and other daily illustrations which will encourage you as an individual and a family to examine your own life and where you stand in applying God's Word. Those applications that we talked about last week. These things on this list show us ways in which we perhaps fall short in applying those applications from last week. Now, the first example, we don't have to go very far into the Bible. You probably know where I'm going to go here already. We see Adam and Eve so quickly departing from God's direct command given to them in the garden. Now, this is an example of a sin providing the playbook for almost every other way in which we convince ourselves not to follow God's word. Now, having learned little from our parents, I think we too often want to experience life, experience things according to our standards and to rationalize to ourselves that our way is probably maybe just a little bit better than that which God has given us directly in his word. I think about some of the things I see around town, some of the warnings, you know, don't feed the bears, don't lean on the railing, don't stop on the railroad tracks. Now, we look at those things and most of us probably don't think of pushing the rules in that regard. Why? Because they're 
is a danger attached to that warning that's there. If I park on the railroad tracks, a train could come and hit my car. But do we treat God's word in a lesser way than we treat the signs on the side of a road or on a railing? Do we see his warning there given to us? And yet we decide that we're going to flirt and go as close to that edge of that railing as we can. You see, I think that often we hear the words of the serpent given on that fateful day, still echoing in our ears all these years later. He is beckoning us to experience life according to our standards, such that we deny God's word. And so we take from the tree or whatever it is that's pleasing to our sight on any given day because we think it is desirable to make us wise or make us beautiful or to make us rich, whatever it is on that certain day. But I pray that we will learn that it is not our standard, but it is God's that determines good from evil. And he has already given us his word to direct us in that way. Now, the next example that I have, I've taken from the tragic story of Samson. Here we have a man who, after many poor decisions in life, has finally closely associated himself, not with people that love the Lord, but with people and a wife who are dedicated to things contrary to the God that he served. Now, eventually, his weakness came about because, as we read in Judges 16.16, his wife had pestered him daily with her words and pressed him so that his soul was vexed to death. And I think in the same way, we can paint ourselves into the same corner that Samson did. You see, he had become so closely tied to the world and the things of it that he had failed to persevere. He had failed to struggle against the tide, against the world which was standing up against him. So instead of bending his knee to the will of God, he had grown tired or apathetic and had finally bent his knee in submission to the world. And if this is where you find your struggle, pray as Samson did that we would be strengthened by God to turn away from the tenacious grip of a world that is and will be opposed to you and everything you do in this life. Now, my next example can't leave Jonah out because he boldly denied the word of God, commanding him to take God's message to a lost people. His flaw is a flaw which many of us share today. And ultimately, I believe it's grounded in pride. In his case, it was a prideful heart. You see, he had determined that his measure of grace and forgiveness was just a little bit more important than what God was willing to offer to those lost Ninevites. I think I have a pretty good example for this. I've had a knee uh, problem, injury, for about five weeks now. I've been real hesitant to go to the doctor. Part of the reason is, and I have to give you a little history about military doctors. Hopefully, I'm not going to offend anybody here. But you see, military doctors have a couple great skills. One of them is, like all doctors, they can scribble really well. And the second ability that they have is that they can scribble the word Motrin very well. And so typically you'll go into, or not typically, almost every time I've gone into the flight surgeon, they brought me in and they just start scribbling down on a pad of paper. And I know what the guy's going to say. I mean, I know he went to the course that every surgeon does in the military where they listed every ailment known to mankind, including death. And on the next slide, 
it says, give the patient Motrin. <laughs> so I know what he's going to tell me already. But then again, that could be my pride talking. Maybe I would go in to see him and I might get that guy who went to school somewhere else and didn't get that brief on the Motrin. And, and the point of the illustration is not just to be funny, but the point is that sometimes we take that same attitude to the Word of God. We think, ah, I know what God says about that. I don't need to read. I already know what He's going to say. I don't need to turn to His Word. But you know, one of the graces that we have in this life is that we can come and God will bless us through the reading of His Word. How many times have we read a passage in the Bible and then gone back and read it another time and it speaks to us in a completely different way than the time that we had before? That is our pride stopping us from going to His Word and instead thinking that we know what He has to say to us before He has even had a chance to speak to our heart. So for us, pride can take many shapes. But no matter what the reason for that pride, if we continue in it, it can and it will blind us as to how God wants us to live our life. So if this is the problem that you see, let us not forget the words of Proverbs 16:18, which state, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Now, personally for myself and maybe a few others here today, fear is one of the most common reasons that we justify failing to keep God's word. Now, in the Bible, Peter did many amazing things, but he also gives us some great examples of fear in action, both when he denied Christ and when he did not speak out when the Jews had come to confront him when he was eating with the Gentiles. Now, in these cases, but also in our own life, we have to recognize how fear causes us to stumble. And it is a painful acknowledgement to ourselves, if we acknowledge it, that we know God's truth, but we fail to live according to it because we are afraid. And I have another prayer for this one as well. As the psalmist says in 56.4, In God I will praise His word. In God I have put my trust. I will not fear. What can flesh do to me? Now this one, obviously I'm going to have to get with Rodney again because every time I seem to do a sermon, except for last week, we seem to have a mind meld at some point and he managed to hit everything on my next point. So you, you'll get to hear it again. Obviously, God was speaking to us both about this one subject. And the next way in which we refuse to follow God's word is when we apply its convicting powers to others while downplaying our similar sins. If you remember last week, conviction was one of the applications that we're supposed to be applying you know, not to everybody else, but to ourselves. And if we're failing to do that or applying to others, then we're not following God's word in this part of our life. Now, as he pointed out, Christ had explicitly spoke to this in the example he gave about planks and specks. But the other personal example was, yes, from the life of King David. Now, when Nathan had brought him this story, I want you to hear now David's response. You see, he didn't just convict that rich man when Nathan came to him, he used the Lord's name to convict that man. This is his quote from 2 Samuel 12:5. As the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. So let us not deny the convicting 
and cleansing power of God's word in a similar way as we rush to wield the scriptures against others unless we have first applied its convicting power to our own lives. Now, the last one I'll go into great detail here is from Christ's Sermon on the Mount, which, among other things, and there are lots of things we could go into, it provided a subtle standard or it provided an example of how many today subtly substitute their standard for that of God's word. Now, he had penetrated through the religious sounding arguments of the Jewish leaders of that day in order to show the people that they had added to minimized and legalized the God-given law in order to suit their own ends, not to love and honor God, which is why it was given to the people. Now, although those three things, adding, subtracting, and legalizing, might seem like they're not tied together, they are, because each is involved when law-keeping is set up as the way to salvation. Because, you see, if we place the law up here, as the thing which brings us to salvation, then eventually we will find it necessary to add some things to that law, which we and those people we like are capable of following. And then as we start following our laws, the laws that God has given will become minimized and put to the back. The illustration I have for this is from the game Monopoly. And I, I picked this game because I figure most people have probably played it before. And perhaps, like me, maybe you've gone to a distant cousin's house at one time. It's been a rainy day and you didn't want to go outside. Your parents wouldn't let you go outside and get all muddy. So you break open this Monopoly game that had been around forever. And you start playing it, get enough of the pieces together that you can play. And as you're going around the board, they start telling you, well, you know, this is what we do on this space. And when you get over here, you have to do this. And we don't play by that rule. We play by this rule. And eventually you realize, you know, this is not the game... I think, well, let me look at the rules and you can't find them because the game's been around since 1925. So the rules are lost. And, and my point in that is not that you shouldn't have fun and change the rules around for a game if you want to. But what people do when they change and add or subtract rules from a game is you've changed the intent of the person who made that game. And in the same way, if we add or we subtract from God's word, we change from the intent of what he has given to us. And so it's not just the fault of the Jews because everybody has a tendency to measure themselves to others instead of measuring themselves in their heart according to God's word. And if we start comparing ourselves to others, eventually we're going to set up that own standard that we have and it's not going to be God's conviction and correcting in our own heart. So instead, let us not set up a standard of our own so that we can meet it, but let us find that conviction, correction, and sanctification from His Word. Now, there's other ways in which we can deny God's Word in our life, and I'm not going to go into them, these next few ones, in great detail, but I'll leave the rest of these, these last four, for you to ponder perhaps stimulate your mind to think of some ways in which you are abandoning God's word. First of all, there's pragmatism. Pragmatism is doing what works, vice what is right. Think of the example of Abraham. He had the promise of God that he was going to have the child of promise. And he didn't wait for it to happen God's way. He decided to do what worked. And he had a child with Hagar. 
And I think the church today dabbles heavily in pragmatism. We're willing to do almost anything that works, whether or not God's word says that we should be going down that path that we're going. How about lack of knowledge? Are we failing to pursue the mass of resources that we have available to us today in the Western church? Or are we content with where we stand? Potentially, we're not applying God's word because, you know, we don't know what it is. We've come to live and to exist and know a little bit about God's word. But there's so much more that we have access to. And I, I don't think it's an excuse that we can use that, that we don't have the time. He's, given, he's opened this door to us at this time and he can close it at any time. And we would have to account for why we did not use the resources we had while we had the chance. So many other people in the world do not have what we have. How about failing to inquire of God? I think of Joshua when he was told to go in and clear everybody out of Canaan. And yet he made a treaty with the Gibeonites because he did not first consult God before he made that decision. And I think sometimes we are less than diligent when something arises thinking we can handle it on our own. This one's closely tied to the pride, but a little bit different. And lastly, greed. Again, those same Israelites, I'm picking on them a lot. They, when they went in and they took Jericho, they weren't supposed to take anything out of that city when they destroyed it. But yet they did. And so I think perhaps we ourselves downplay God's word in certain areas. If it seems to cramp our physical well-being or the lifestyle that we think we deserve, vice the lifestyle that perhaps God has placed us in at a certain point in our life. So, like I said, I bring these examples up. You know, mainly I came up with them because they've applied to my life at one time or another. And unfortunately for me, it was pretty easy and quick to build this list. I guess that's a sad thing that I was able to build a list so quickly. But I think if we're honest, we could probably all agree with some of these things and even add to that list. And trust me, it doesn't take that long of a time to do it. But my point, like I said, was not to dwell on the sinful aspect of it, because what I want to show you is that there's a space that we are at. There's the outright denial of God's word. And I don't believe that we're there. And there's the perfection of living according to his will and his revealed word. And right now, I don't think we're there either. So we're in this space in between. And then it is in the space that we're in between that we are instructing ourselves in righteousness. We're, we're taking those applications that we learned last week and we're moving ourselves closer to the will of God. But we have to take the time to recognize where we stand on that spectrum and to take the time to recognize where we're failing in that spectrum so that we can move to bend ourselves more to His will and less to our own will. Now, hopefully in these last two weeks, I've impressed on you a little of the importance Paul placed on making Scripture central to salvation and to all of life. He did not see doctrine. He doesn't see the Word of God as merely an academic exercise. But it is a divinely appointed means of grace which enables His people to live according to His revealed will if we are in His Word and we are learning and we are living by it. Now, from the first week, I hope that you came away with some real practical ways in which to reinvigorate the way we apply Scripture in our lives and in how we deal with others. 
Now, this week was a little bit different because I thought it was important to analyze Paul's cautions that he had interspersed here as he wrote to Timothy. Because there were people who were abandoning the scriptures as their foundation. And we have to be able to recognize when that happens in our own life and around us, in the things we read, in the things we hear. If we do not recognize it, we could very well fall into the trap because some of these things sound so enticing when you hear them spoken smoothly by the lips of people who are trying merely to please your ears. I do think that there is plenty of evidence that we have moved into this postmodern age. If you remember last week, it was the age of insecurity and uncertainty that I had talked about. And we should not deny that that shift has happened. If we deny it, then it's putting our heads into the sand. But if you also remember from last week, I said that the problem wasn't truly the insecurity and the uncertainty that the people were living in or the people are living in, but it's that their foundation, their worldview is wrong. And the thing which they are approaching life with is only leading them into further questions, not into the truth. Now, instead of bringing the scriptures to the people, which is what they really need to build a foundation, instead of bringing Christ through the scriptures to them, that burning in their heart, which will come as the Holy Spirit works in them as we bring the word to them, what we are being offered today by the emergent church is merely a new way to deal with lost people. Their method doesn't require building that foundation. It is just to meet them where they are at with their questions and their uncertainty. And sadly, the problem is not that they're just meeting them there, but that they're joining them in that same uncertainty. And the error in this should be obvious to us. For while our society may have shifted from the modern to the postmodern outlook, the scriptures and what we feel about them was never based on the previous modernist society or any other age or societal worldview that came before it, but was always based on God's word revealed directly to us, his people. So since we were never modernist, but always biblical, we have no reason to become postmodern in our church, but to remain beholden to the truth of God as people have in every age prior to ours. So if you do find your foundation for faith and life on the rock and the truth of God's word, my encouragement to you this week is to use the first part of the sermon merely to learn and recognize this danger as it has entered mainstream Christian thought. But even more importantly, I would pray that you would use the second part of the sermon to examine how we can strengthen our practical application of Scripture by avoiding those things which cause us to depart from God's will in our life. Let us pray. Dear Father, You have so much to tell us in Your Word. And we thank You that You have given us Your Spirit who does lead us into all truth. We know we do not need to rely on ourselves, the world, the things around us 
to tell us what to do and to how to live and to who to worship, but we have your word, which reveals all that we need concerning you, salvation, and life. Lord, I pray that we would not have those itching ears looking to lift up a teacher or to read a book which pleases ourselves, but that we would have a burning in our heart for your word and that which you would reveal to us each day. Thank you, Lord, for allowing this time together to come to your word. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Let us.